said, you know, how good were you? Mm -hmm. And he said, there were nights. He says, I was the best there ever was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's Woody Herman. Yeah. I'd say Woody, Woody Herman. You know. and, and Goodman. Yeah, uh, and Benny Goodman. Yeah, and Goodman uh -huh. too. Yeah. Those three guys. That's when the clarinet was right. really an instrument. Yeah, yeah. see, because I went to Indiana, you know, and at that I time, Quincy yeah. was coming back there doing workshops. Quincy Johnson? Oh, yeah, no during kidding. the summers. Uh -huh. So that, that was my, Reeds was my first thing, you know. But Order. you had played keyboard before that, hadn't you? No, no. I, I started out on clarinet, and I got the job at sax, on baritone sax, and then went to uh, piano in order to keep the job at stax. Oh, well, you, it, it was 1962, you had the Green Onions record. Right, that about, was, about yeah, but I had been at stax before that. But what had you played, what were you playing on Green Onions? You were playing the organ. See, I got into stacks by playing baritone sax on Rufus and Thomas, Rufus and Thomas, yeah. uh, Rufus Carla. and Carla, Because yeah. I Love You. That's how I got in the door, playing baritone. And then I, you know, I told my, I play piano too, and that, that's how I got the gig, you know, after school at night. Well, I heard a story that uh, they had to get rid of a piano in your house, and, uh, and you were really upset when you were a little kid. And, yeah, that first old piano that my mom bought, didn't have room for it or whatever, um, yeah, yeah. How did, you, how did you know it was music for you? Was there anybody that come from the family, or how did that happen? No, it was going to be medicine for a long time, but I kept with music because I loved it. And uh, my first gig, when I was in about the ninth grade, paid me $15. I know you know what that means back then. You know, so it was like four pieces and 60 bucks for, uh, you know, a dance for a, a university uh, medical uh, school. How much was music a part of Memphis when you were growing up? Well, Memphis was music, you know, that's W.C. Handy. And down where my mom was working down on Beale Street, you know, we would go down there and we'd hear music on the street, you know, it was like New Orleans. And, yeah. You know, there are people playing for money. Down the blind man on the corner was Schwab's drugstore in Memphis on the corner of Beale and Hernando. I never will forget it. That was the first time I heard the blues down there. No Playing the little band every day. Who were some of the guys that uh, came out of there, out of Memphis at that time? At that time was mainly B.B. King. Uh, a lot of the Texas players were coming through playing the clubs. Bobby Blue Bland, some of the big band players, a lot of the jazz players, Jimmy um, Smith, Jimmy McGriff, Jack McDuff was the guy that got me playing organ. How segregated was it then, too? Oh, it was segregated. It was physically segregated, and Stax was right on the line. Macklemore Avenue was the line. That's where whites and blacks came together, right there. So Stax was very crucially located for two races coming together to play music there. What was the reaction when, when you formed this, this band in Memphis, in your hometown, in Cropper's hometown? Mm -hmm. What was the reaction of you playing together? Uh, whites and blacks didn't pay too much attention to the fact that it was interracial because they were both into the music. The whites were into the music and blacks were too. So, But the, the time when that came up was in checking in the hotels. Yeah. When we started playing, traveling, you know, renting cars and, and uh, that type of thing. Yeah. But in That's Memphis itself, uh, you never felt the reaction to it at all? Well, we either played a black club or a white club. Uh -huh. No, there weren't that many. But all of the, the guys always did know each other. 
And we always did sort of hang out together, the whites and the black musicians. But we never did anything like that, you know, until the MG. Was Stax something when you were growing up, or did it just start when you were ready to go? Stax was Satellite Record Shop. And it was Satellite Records. And it was uh, Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton's mortgage money to buy a tape machine to let's see what we can do with some country music, you know, was what's, what it was. And they finally moved out of their garage and rented that old theater. That's what Stax was. Stax was Satellite Record Shop. Okay, and how I got in was I loved music and I was always in the record shop. Back then you didn't just go in and buy a record, you know, you, you listened to it first. And if you liked it, or you listened to it, four or five of them, they didn't care. You know, they had booths, you could, you know how it was, you could play the records. And, and Estelle Axton was on the other side of the counter. And I was on this side and I listened to music for, you know, two hours in the afternoon. That and bought. black and white kids could come in the store? It was right there on the edge of the white neighborhood and the black neighborhood. Yeah. Well, that was a, a time and a place that was a lot different than what went be before it. When I talked to Hampton and I talked to guys who traveled in bands through the South especially, mm -hmm. obviously it was murder. Oh, yeah. But oh, was, yeah. was Stax something that kids who were musicians thought they would one day aspire to be in, uh, in satellite records or in the label or whatever they had? No, no. It was very tiny, very yeah. small, very mom and pop-ish, you know, very small. It, that that was almost no no one suspected. Jim Stewart didn't suspect. No one suspected. What kind of guy was he? Jim Stewart worked at the bank in Memphis. That was who he was. He was a fiddle player on the side, just because he liked it. He always loved music. But Jim had to make himself into a record man. You know, he worked at the bank while we were still having hits. You know, yeah. I mean, he was still coming in at four o'clock in the afternoon after. His, day at the bank, you know, with his, you know, bank suit on and, you know, then he'd unloosen his tie and go in the control room, you know. To the outside, it, uh, Al Bell looked like Stax Records a lot, too. What was... Yeah, Al was about four or five years later. Al came in, Al was the first high-pressure promotion man for Stax. That's basically what he was, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me about that, the feeling at that place. I've talked to all kinds of Motown people about the feeling there, and I've talked to the Don Kirshner writers, you know, that uh, there, was, there were very few places where there were these concentrations of writers and mm -hmm. artists. What was it like at Stax, is to the best of your record? It was a second home for most of us because we hung out there. You know, we went there at 10.30, 11 o'clock in the morning and left at 11 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. There were two feelings. The first feeling was a kind of relaxed feeling, oh, this is fun, oh, we make a little money, you know, and then we started having one or two hits and it got a little bit more serious. There was a, it was a family. It was a very uh, you know tight family, and then it got a little more intense when uh, Jerry and Ahmet and Tom Dow started coming down. These were professional record people, and it was still a family which included them, but got a little bit more serious about what we were doing and had a little more fun. Tom you know Tom was always laughing in the studio, you know, and they were so enthusiastic. So it was basically two, two feelings: the pre-Atlantic and yeah, and after Atlantic. And were you with them when they went through all the other machinations, the Gulf and Western, and the other things? That was the time when I was getting disenchanted. That start. That was about the time I started to be disenchanted. When it, 
when all the names got on, owned by so-and-so and so-and-so, and, and, and it became corporate, and it was more meetings than music. You know, they made us all vice presidents, and we had offices, and, you know, we were making decisions about, you know, what to record, you know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which, which you have to do, but, you know, to me, Stax was going in, and who's got an idea, you know? And what is it, you know? And then it, it did get corporate. Then about about sixty nine when I came out here, when I left they were having, you know, meetings three or four times a week. You know, it was it was corporate by then. In the uh in the good days, how were artists uh, picked? Uh, how were songs picked? Who was who was creatively in charge of all that? Well, it was almost a consensus. Ultimately Jim was in charge in the beginning, and then Jim and Al. But Myself and Steve and Isaac and David and Al Jackson were mainly we were the Who's David? David Porter. Oh yeah. We were the core of the the band and the, we were the people that got all the songs to start happening. How did how did somebody like an Otis Redding get with that label? Well, you know, Otis came in as a as a a valet for Johnny and the Pine Toppers who were auditioning in uh, 63, I think, or 64. And it was, let me sing a song, let me sing a song, you know. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's how he got in. What do you remember about him? Well, this was dynamic, you know. Um, I miss Otis, you know. I mean, Otis was, was excited about music all the time, you know. And uh, when we did, um, the week that we did uh, Dock of the Bay, you know, we we were going home at two and three in the morning and coming back at ten. You know, we just we just recorded all the time during that last week. He was he was dynamic. Otis was electric when it came to music. You know. And was he the best of them all down there? Because there were some pretty good people. Wilson and Otis. Otis was head honcho. Yeah. Yeah, he was head honcho. Temperamental at all. Or? Well, yeah, Otis was um, temperamental. Uh, when it came to his music, is basically all he really cared about. You know, he would lose his temper over that, but not, you know, otherwise. But, but not a, a star, star. I mean. No, no. Uh -uh. What about Wilson Pickett? Wilson. Who incidentally called, I, I was supposed to do him yesterday in an interview, and now he wants to know how much I'll pay him for the interview. I saw Wilson. Saturday night after that, that thing. I was like, How's a wild man? <laughs> yeah. You know, Wilson. Uh, Wilson would have made a good boxer too. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Isaac, were you gone by the time Isaac? You were gone by the time Isaac was a was a star artist, weren't you? Yeah, I was gone by then. Uh -huh. Was he a was he a piano player before or a keyboard? No, player? artist. Isaac couldn't play the piano when I first met. Oh, that's right. He told me that. Isaac story. was standing there watching me. Yeah. Isaac taught himself to play at, yeah. while we, after we had started that. He faked his way in. Too. Yeah, Isaac had great musical ideas, and he was, you know, eccentric and uh, had his own ideas about things. He was an individual, but Isaac also was dynamic, you know, musically dynamic. How good were uh, Sam and Dave? Sam and Dave were dynamic. Yeah. Especially together. Mm -hmm. 
band and able to do that. Now, when you made these records, how much input did you guys have? Well, we, uh, by, by us guys, meaning myself I mean band, and Al and, and, um, and Duck and uh, yeah, we were pretty much shaping the music. We weren't writing all the songs. We were writing most of the songs. We were shaping the music. We were setting the tempos. I mean, you know, when you play the piano in a band, you have a lot of, really have a lot of power. It's like, you know, when you play the drums, it's the power you have over the tempo and the feel. So you can determine, you know. And also, it's a matter of how much, you know, the people are willing to follow you. But we had a lot of input. But this is different than the Motown band. Is it? It, it, it seems. They were great players and they could play anything you wanted. Mm -hmm. But it, uh, do you know much about those guys? That uh, mm -hmm. It seemed that was a producer heaven. A mm -hmm. Smokey or mm -hmm. Holland or Holland would come in and, and they had a the band that played for everybody. But Yeah, we listened to the records but I don't know, I don't know how they did it. Tell me about your band. How good was that? How good were you guys as players? Uh, I went to Indiana for four years, from 62 to 66, which eventually ended up breaking me up with the band and the people at Stacks. Why was that? Well, because uh, they felt that I left at a time when we should have been going for it in 62. And I wanted to learn about music in 62. I was 18, and I figured, am I going to go back to school at 23? Maybe not. So I did it then. And they felt that that was a prime. And it became an argument that just grew. And it became a rift. Between you and the guys, too? You and the band? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. They felt that that was the time for them to make their fortune on the world. And, you know. But the band, uh, I felt, reached its potential in 70, in 71. So this is after you got out of college? Yeah, well, I, we were still recording for Stacks after I moved out here. We were recording at, at Hyder's. And our last really good album was Melting Pot, which we did here. So we had about a nine-year run of music going like this. You know, at which point I felt it tapered off. Is that inevitable? What happens uh, when, when a, a group finally doesn't make it anymore? Is it, is it more personality and more lack of ideas? or? People have to keep pushing with music. Music isn't something that will continue to uh, expand and grow. You have to keep working with it. You have to, you have to be open to new ideas. You have to be willing to experiment. And you can't become complacent. You can't, you know, rest on what you've done in the past. But you know, when when a band starts playing the same thing over and over again, when they're supposed to be playing something new, you know, you're losing it. Then, you know, I think. We were a band that started something new, so we had to. Every record had to be fresh, or it was no good. You know, we couldn't we couldn't redo Green Onions, you know, because that was a new sound, it was a new rhythm. You know, we had to come up with another one. You know, we had to keep doing that. And after a while, the same guys have really gotten all from each other. They could, is that it? Well, I think there was some complacency that came up in the group. Some what do you call it? Um, you know, you have to keep pushing. Yeah, you have yeah, to keep, yeah. you know, not studying, but you have to keep 
You have to stay imaginative. And, and what weird. was the musical philosophy of this band? You know, you've been described as having, you know, really retaining simplicity and melodies. And mm -hmm. uh, if you had to describe it, what, what would you say the MGs were? Well, simplicity was a mainstay. The feeling was what we really strove for. You know, melody. And no, we know we did up tempo and and uh, ballads. So. Mainly, it was mainly the feeling, but simplicity was definitely one of my bywords. You'd stick to the stick to that melody line pretty much, and, mm -hmm. and how but about we also like to expand and experiment and push the limit. You know, that's what we that's what we didn't do in the seventies. That's what I felt yeah. was missing. You know, push push that outer limit. Make the make the person that's listening feel like you just got so much emotion that you're gonna explode. You know. And that, that's what I'm going for now. That, that's, that's what it's about to have me. Have you found it since then? Since In my own stuff, I have, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And where are the rest of the guys? I, uh, of course, Al Jackson died Yeah, uh, but, uh, Steve I heard from. Steve is uh, in between here and New York and Nashville. He's working for Merit Music. What is that? Uh, it's a publishing company in Nashville. And what's he doing, running the company? He, Steve is producing for various people. I've seen his name around. Producing, I think he's doing some movie work and uh, some work with some artists. I saw his name with an Australian artist mm -hmm. on Billboard. And Duck is uh, playing with Eric Clapton wow. most of the time. Lives in England? Or? No, he's living in Memphis. He travels, and, uh, but on most of Eric's tours, Duck's been playing. And I think Duck plays on Eric's albums, too. You know, the, uh, look at this, a, a question. If Barry Gordy had lived in Philadelphia, could it have been Philly town? Is there talent everywhere? Had there had Stax and Jim Stewart in this operation been in Atlanta, would they have been able to do it there? Now that's a that's a potent question, Joe. Because now, there is no Memphis music scene now. Why not? I think to an extent that's true. To an extent. But I have to feel I have to say that I feel that Certain musical talent uh, develops around places like Memphis and New Orleans and Chicago because of the, whether they're river towns, whether they're whether it's a, a front, you know, whether it's that that Wild West open feeling that develops around a town. Because look at Memphis, you know, Roy Orbison, Elvis Presley. I mean, it goes on and on. You know, the, the people that have come out of Memphis. And a, a city just, you know, a few miles to the south of Atlanta, you don't have that. You know, I mean, you have, you have the oldest, right, but you don't have... Oh, it's not a... Uh, it, it isn't, you know, and a few miles to the to the west, you know, Oklahoma City, you know, you don't have that. So I think it's it's cultural centers, maybe maybe it is, uh, let's shall we say, metaphysical or... Uh, it might be. What is the word? But, well, it... It always puzzles me. It puzzles me how, in Brooklyn, New York, in a in a twenty square block area, came mm -hmm. Jerry Goffin and Carol King and right. Neil Sedaka and Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil and Don Kirshner and Neil Diamond. Mm -hmm. All these people came in a short period of time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's been nothing like it since. Mm -hmm. Nothing like it before. Mm -hmm. Detroit. Mm -hmm. All right. They open up Motown. Mm -hmm. Out of the woodwork comes all these people. They moved the record company here. Mm -hmm. There's nothing happening in Detroit. Right, right. Are they still there in Detroit? Mm -hmm. If Gordy went back into Detroit, 
opened up a studio, had all this opportunity for kids, would there still be great stuff in Detroit? Okay, I'm going to get metaphysical. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, what do you think of when you think of Brooklyn? You think of neighborhood. You think of people that care about each other, people that hang out the window and talk with each other, and people that know each other on the block. Okay, to be totally metaphysical, music, to me, is a muse. Like art is a muse. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's a feeling that can gather itself unto itself. And 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 and, and uh, accumulate in certain areas of the earth. I believe that music has that capability. I believe that music is begging to be made and that it has power to create circumstances so that it can be made in its best form. I think music is, is a supernatural thing like a muse. And, and that's why you have uh, conglomerations of, of creative people, like we say, in Brooklyn, Detroit, Detroit Memphis, mm-hmm. and, and not so much, say, in, in, a, in a Cleveland or in a, a St. Louis, or, you know, I believe it, it gathers itself. And I just don't know why, when Motown moved away, it dried up. You would have thought that there'd be some ongoing Marvin Gaye's or Diana Ross's or Stevie Wonder's mm-hmm. in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, if someday, someday I get this company straightened out, I, I may just fund somebody for a couple of million dollars, set up offices in Detroit or Chicago, mm-hmm. and see what they can do. Mm-hmm. Have a studio where all kinds of kids can come in. I would say those would be two cities because I think you know, like it's like I say, it's metaphysical. It may have to do with the physical location. You know, it may have to do with water. Temperature, you know. Who knows? Who knows? Feeling in the city, you know, the fact that they make cars in Detroit. As you said, Chicago was great. Mm -hmm. Now there's nothing happening musically in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Commercials, Mm -hmm. studios. There's no. They moved. VJ moved out. Mercury moved out. Chess Chess, moved mm -hmm. out. Gone. Mm -hmm. Now there's nothing there. So it seems to me that what you say may be true. That Mm -hmm. the the music may be there, Mm -hmm. but you then got to put something that's the magnet. Oh yeah, there has to be an impetus. Drags it out of the neighborhood. Tells the kids, hey, you got five hours of studio time, just screw around, let me hear what you got, mm-hmm. and, do, and do that. It could be one person, you know, one person who has the driving force, you know. That's what Gordy had, that's and always what Stuart People, had. you know, you know, people all come around. One person who knows nothing about music, you know, could be that. Some guru kind of guy. Oh, yeah, just somebody who's, you know, an executive who says, make me a record, you know, but he says it like this, you know. <laughs> if, you, if you got together, this is speculation again, with... Duck and Steve, and drum again. could you do it again? Not without Al Jackson. Yeah. Chemistry. That's what happened with the album you did for a lecture. Mm-hmm. Chemistry. Uh, you know, the, the, the four, you know, the four people, the chemistry that happened. You know, it's like uh, Al Jackson was good chemistry for a lot of people. Al Jackson was good chemistry for Al Green. Al Jackson was good chemistry for the guy on Atlantic that died, uh, Donnie Hathaway, for Otis Redding, Slammer Dave Wilson Pickett, Eddie Ford. You know, where are all these people now? I mean, where are they? Where's that pulse, that drive? You know what I mean? And Jackson was gone? Sure. 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 Was there, you know, why, why don't they do that with another drummer? You know? 
It's that. You know, and it comes out, comes through. You know, people hear it and feel it. You know, it makes you feel like that. I was, you know, that feeling I was talking about, like you can't contain yourself. That's the way those records felt. You know, the Midnight Hour and Green Onions, Time Is Tight. You know, that pulse. Although you can't see it, it's a little extra. And you, of course, as a rhythm, uh, a keyboard player, could really feel that too. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. Did. Uh, did they know at Stacks how good you guys were? Yeah. Did you get paid well? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> how about exploitation then? Uh, you guys feel that you were being exploited at the time? Well, I think they lost sight of the of what was happening at Stacks. I think they lost. So they hired another band for to what they called they had an A band and a B band. They had an A studio and a B studio. And I think, you know, what happened was with the money that they made, they started buying uh, distributorships across the country and they started making movies and, you know, doing things like that. And I think they lost sight of the small thing that was the big thing. The small thing was getting that little group of people together with an artist and making one record at a time, you know. And then they started thinking about making ten records, you know what I mean? It had to be, though, those those few years, just, they had to be golden memories for you. Oh, yeah, it was great. I'm so glad I was involved. It doesn't matter that I didn't make millions, you know, because what I got from it is worth you know, being involved, I lo first of all, I loved the music, I had a great time, you know, and I learned about music, and uh, I made a good reputation for myself, and I had, you know, 10 of the best years of my life, and I was really, really happy. Who, uh, was, was Otis the favorite artist that you had? I liked everybody uh, that we had there. Um, Otis did. A, Otis taught me a lot about the rawness of music, you know, and about going live and getting people excited, you know, and creating a feeling in a, you know, a stadium or in an auditorium. But I can't say he was my favorite because I really did enjoy working with everybody. And since that time, you've uh, you've not been part of any kind of operation like that. No aggregation like that. Mm -hmm. well, there is, there probably isn't one now, I guess. Not that I know of. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that uh, Motown and Stax, though Motown continues, but it's certainly not the same kind of company it was. Mm -hmm. Is mm -hmm. there any such company? Has there been in the last several years? Anything like that? It really comes out of the music? Not that I know of. It was a historical thing, you know. But we didn't know it. But it, you know, maybe, maybe time will gather something like that again in the future. You know? But a part of it comes from the struggling, I think. You know, yeah. you know what I mean? I mean, just trying to make it, and mm -hmm. there's almost no room in the business for small companies like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the price of war is just so much. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So here we got these six gigantic corporations and a few independents. And yeah, mm -hmm. but I think you know it's. It taught us a lot, you know, it shaped music, it, it, it helped the industry, you know, it taught, 
you know, I think it taught a lot of the musicians that are making music now a lot about it. You know, like Prince and, you know, the Commodores and people that, you know, whose music evolved, rock and roll evolved from that, you know. Do you get a, how, how do you tell the impact that you've made on people with the music from that? How do I what? I mean, how, how does it manifest itself? People still come up and say, man, that was the... Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. I get a like? lot of that. What's that feels that? great, you know. Yeah. It's, it's great that you were able to give, you know, something to the world, you know. That, you know, some a few minutes of enjoyment, people were dancing or whatever they did, you know, when they when they liked the music, you know, it's great to have done that. And I got a lot out of it myself, you know. I mean, I still like those tunes, you know, yeah. that we did. Most, most all of them, I have all the records, you know. That music hold up pretty well? Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I hope it gets, you know, most of it gets put put out again on uh, compact disc. Who has those masters now? Where are they? Well, you know, Atlantic has half of them, or some, or a lot of them. And Fantasy has some of them. Oh, Atlantic Fantasy. has put their stuff, most of their stuff out, or they are putting out. And did out. you have a lot of your stuff on there? Green Onions is still Atlantic, and mm -hmm. uh, it's most mostly Atlantic. Uh -huh. Fantasy has a few of them. Yeah. Uh, they bought, they separated, and I think up through '68 or something like that. Atlantic has. And then fantasy has from '68 or '67 on, something like that. But you find that uh, the impact is still there. Certainly, you know, people don't come up and tell you that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that has to be very, very satisfying. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned, I'm incorporating in my new music. You know, I'm. You know, the the, old, the lessons still apply. The, you know, the old lessons. You know. Can uh, what happens now? Given the computerization of music, and I heard a computerized bass yesterday on a record. And mm -hmm. how does how do you do that alongside Duck Dunn? What does Duck Dunn know now if if this is the way a record is made? Well, that's the way some records are made. Everybody's not doing it like yeah. that, you know. I think but that a lot of people are. I think it has reached its peak. I think the trend is going back the other way. I think it's, you know, I think it's like in the stock market, you know, it's been a bull for yeah. so long and then, you know, it, it peaks out. And I think right. that has uh, peaked out. I think you'll find that on uh, a lot of the, the records now that are really making it, you've got people playing on You know, maybe maybe not as many as before, but I think it's, it's, it's going to level out and, and have a balance between the computerization and the human. I really do. Do you remember, uh, just going back again, the feeling of having that hit record with your name on there? Mm-hmm. What was that like? That's a great feeling, you know. I mean, it's there's no feeling like that, you know, to know that people liked something that you did, something that you made. It's like, you know, an artist watching people stand and look at a painting that he made, you know. It would be like that. That's, that's a great feeling. It changed your life very much? Oh, yeah, it became the most important thing in my life. But how about personally? I mean, now did you get cocky with you guys, show business uh, stars then? I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. As you, you know, reflect on it, uh, you kept, nobody ever said anything bad about you. I just wondered, yeah. were you guys well, going through any changes? I've been trying to work on, you know, keeping in my humility, you know, and just realizing that I'm still just, you know, just another guy. Well, back you know. then it was tough to do. You're 18 years old, and here you got a record that's in the top five around the country, and and people are saying how great you are. You, you guys didn't lose control, though. No, I think my parents 
tried to keep me, you know, tell me to keep my head, as my dad would say. <laughs> you know, keep your head on your shoulders, <laughs> he'd say. You know, but that is hard to do, though. You know, yeah. You can think that you're good, you know, but that's always relative. Right? Always somebody better, much better, in a lot of cases. Well, you're looking good, pal. And, well, uh, thanks. And you're around, and here we are. We're all still surviving through it all. Yeah, yeah. We can change it and bring the Sinclaviers and other companies, and we're still here. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're all still doing it. Yeah, I think it's going to be some good music made in the future. You know, music, music has a really good future. Because I think people are going to combine, you know, as you say, what's happening in the old and, yeah. and you know, like I a still, lot of them.